Well, good morning, Bethel Church. Uh, we're singing that song, I Lift My Eyes to the Hills, and I'm recalling our series through the Psalms last summer uh, as we looked at that particular psalm and uh, the psalm of ascent, and we reminded ourselves that uh, those who look to the hills in a psalm of ascent on their way back to Jerusalem during these times of worship and the festivals, they look to the hills not with hope, they look to the hills with fear because it was therein that the bandits, bandits lie. And it was therein that people falsely looked for hope. They looked for the hope of false gods from there. But we look to the hills, and that's not where our hope comes from. We look to the hills, and we know we have the true and the living God who is for us. And therefore, who can be against us? Uh, God, this morning we turn our eyes uh, to your word. Not so that we might know a book, but that we might know the God of the book and know you better and know you intimately and be empowered by you for the life that you would have for us. So to that end, Lord, we give you our attention. We ask that by your spirit, you would illuminate the, tu- the truths of the text. They would penetrate to the depths of our heart and influence our actions that we might be changed and live for you boldly. So thank you, Lord, for who you are, for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd open your Bibles uh, this morning to Nehemiah 2, we're going to be focusing in chapter 4, but we're going to start a few things here in 2, so if you'll turn there first. I'm going to make a very glib and uh, kind of a thin statement by way of getting your attention. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but opposition is part of life. Can I get an amen to that? Ah. Uh, as is certainly, it is certainly a part of the Christian's life. For those who have committed themselves to the Lord, you have, let me tell you, invited opposition into your life. Uh, but those who are with the Lord will overcome. Uh, what we learn in this passage this morning, sort of the principal text, that, or the principal point that I want you to hear from the text, is that God's work seldom goes forward without opposition. Uh, And uh, I hope you know that that's true. But this morning we get to look at the example of Nehemiah uh, to see how one overcomes these times of opposition. Uh, Now if you remember, we're looking at this time at the third wave of exiles coming out of Babylon after their time of, of discipline. The years have been up. They've been returning home wave after wave. First under Zerubbabel and a second wave under Ezra and now a wave coming in after Nehemiah. And we've already seen the temple rebuilt, most of the city uh, rebuilt, a lot of good reformation under the work of Ezra. And now we see this unfinished project, the walls, being completed uh, around the city. And so while Nehemiah and his compatriots are approaching the city of Jerusalem and the task that is before them, uh, they begin to encounter the first waves of opposition. And we see this in Nehemiah 2, uh, verse 9, if you'll look there with me. It says, So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So you get this? As, as Nehemiah is leading his host back into the city and they, 
they pass through some of these northern these regions north of uh, of Jerusalem. They're running into these governors there, these local leaders who are opposed to their coming home and reestablishing the security of the walls around Jerusalem. Now skip down to uh, verse 19, verses 19 and 20. And we see a little more opposition from these two figures and actually others. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, that is the project they had in front of them, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I love the way the passage ends there. You get this resilient defiance of Nehemiah, not for his own name, not for his own sake, but rather for that which belongs to the Lord. We are his servants. Reveals again just the driving motivation of Nehemiah here for the adoration of the name of God. This was not a personal pet project that he had undertaken for his own pride or for his own name. He was finishing the work that God had given him to do. And when these officials uh, gave some opposition and showed their uh, frustration with them moving back into the land, he said, Listen, Uh, You guys have no right to this place. The influence that you've wielded there, you're trespassers, in effect, is what he's telling them. You have no right, no claim to this place. This is God's city. Um, So the question I want to begin with here is this. How do we overcome opposition as it comes into our life? Whether it's in our workplace, uh, whether they're financial obstacles, whether they're relational obstacles between us and a spouse or a family member or a friend, uh, as we set about to live life boldly for the Lord, and I trust that's what you're doing, we will, overcome oppos- we will encounter opposition. And the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? So the first point this morning is this. Make sure you're committed to God's cause. And that might seem like a small thought, you might actually take for granted that that is the case. But I ask you to come before the Lord and to consider, is my life committed to God's cause or have I merely asked God to be committed to my cause? Am I living first and foremost for the kingdom of God, aligning all of my life and my affairs, my resources, my time, my efforts, my gifts, for God's glory and for the expansion of his kingdom? Or do I just have God as an accessory to my already committed life to myself? Uh, Again, the rebuilding of this wall for Nehemiah is not just a personal pet project of his, something for which he has invoked the name of the Lord to see it through. This was a project that was committed to the glory of the Lord. It was this shameful disrepair and disgrace of the city that pulled him forward to exalt the name of God by completing this wall around Jerusalem as it should be. It was an act of obedience to complete it. Um, The disgraceful disrepair that had existed reflected poorly upon the people. It reflected poorly upon God. 
it really ultimately meant that there was insufficient honor being given to the Lord. Uh, and as we've studied so much already, as we've gone through Daniel and then Ezra and then Nehemiah, we know this is a time where God has been so gracious to his people. He didn't destroy them for their unfaithfulness. He rather disciplined them and then brought them back into the land. And he's not only brought them back into land with nothing, but he enriched them, right? Through the kings that were over them, Artaxerxes and others. He enriched them. He empowered them. He gave them back the land that was rightfully theirs. God has been gracious to them. And so at a time when God's graciousness to his people is paramount, the disgrace of these, this unfinished wall and the eyesore that was there was unfit. It was not right. And we can see the angst in Haggai when he calls the people out, right? Why do you go home to your paneled houses when my house remains in a ruin? And that's, again, that drive and that burden for Nehemiah. He is burdened for the glory of the Lord, not just a construction project. And here's the thing, friend, if we want to overcome opposition in our life, we need to make sure that first and foremost, we are about God's business. Not just invoking his name to help us with ours. We need to be first and foremost for the Lord. Now, I do think there is a common misconception among a lot of Christians, and we've talked about this before. You know my personal angst for, towards the prosperity gospel, <laughs> Uh, You've heard me talk about that a bit. Um, But I think there are a lot of Christians that unfortunately think that if I trust in Christ as my Savior and become enthralled with the Holy Spirit, become a part of the people of God, then all will go well for me. You know, I've just stepped onto the Yellow Brook Road to this glorious life. And I want to tell you, friend, if you haven't already experienced it, that is not the case. Difficulties don't melt away when we come to the Lord. In fact, I think the inverse is almost always true. Align yourself with the Lord. You've aligned yourself with those who oppose him. And those numbers are great. Early in this book of Nehemiah here, in his writing to us, we learn an important lesson, and that is this, that God's work seldom goes forward without opposition. Let me flesh that out for us a little bit. If you renew your efforts for personal evangelism, and I know many of you are doing that right now, those of you who are taking the Evangelism 101 class, which is part of Pastor Adam's course certificate program that's being taught next hour, something you should all go to, by the way. Uh, If you renew your efforts for personal evangelism, let let me tell you something. You're treading in enemy territory. You're telling an adversary that is in this world, I'm coming to poach and to reclaim that which I think belongs to the Lord by sharing the gospel. So you're, you're inviting attack. You're inviting an adversary to come after you. Do it anyways. Uh, if you repent of some besetting sin in your life, which is the right thing to do, and you bring it into the light, then you know what? Things are most likely going to get harder for you before they get better. Um, Amy and I were talking this week. There was a, I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a book called Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And there's a great prayer of confession in there. And there's this phrase that we were talking about this week. The phrase is this, repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. 
Repentance is one of the hardest things we do, but it leads to life. Whether salvation, or whether the good, abundant life that God has for us in the intervening time. If you take a stand for the Lord at school, among your peers and your teammates, and you practice a life of integrity, you're most likely going to get some ridicule. You might lose some relationships. You may feel yourself a bit ostracized. If you maintain your personal integrity in your business and the way that you go about your job, you may not get the more lucrative contract that your shady competitor gets. It may not go well with you. And so, friends, when we commit ourselves to the Lord, there are temporal costs. There are earthly costs, but there are also eternal rewards. And they far outweigh the costs in this life. And so, how do we then overcome some of these oppositions that come our way? How do we do that? Again, first and foremost, make sure you're committed to the Lord and his cause. That's, that's key. That's foundational to the rest of what's going to follow here. And a part of that, don't allow for compromise. Uh, Sanballat here and Tobiah who are introduced, uh, they are introduced to us as compromised individuals, which may not be really clear just by a cursory reading of the text, but but from their names and from the region that they rule in, we understand that they are uh, compromised in their own integrity, if you could even call it that. These are two figures who rule in Samaria, just north of Jerusalem. Uh, and the name of Tobiah is particularly interesting. Tobiah is a Jewish name, but we're told that he's an Ammonite. And this is among uh, some of these uh, surrounding neighboring uh, communities around Jerusalem who are engaged in these detestable practices which we looked at several weeks ago. So here we have, so this, this is kind of the disconnect that we, the author means for us to hear here. Here we have somebody with a Jewish name, one who ought to be faithful to Yahweh, and yet he's an Ammonite, and he has joined forces here with Sanballat in Samaria. And so it's, we're, we're introduced to this sort of tension. It would be like meeting, let's say, for example, for us, a fellow named Robert Hussein. And we might be a little puzzled by this. Okay, this sounds like, you know, just a regular good old English American name, whatever, and yet Hussein. And it would almost be the equivalent of meeting someone who was born in the U.S. but became a radicalized Muslim, joined the terrorist group, and is now thwarting missionary efforts abroad. That, that's, who we've, that's who we're introduced to here. I'm just making a, a comparison. That's who Sanballat and Tobiah are. Tobiah is someone who has some sort of Jewish ethnicity, but as, is practicing his uh, governance in Samaria and as a, as a Moabite or an Ammonite. And so what we're meant to see here from their heritage and from the description of the ruling areas is that these two men and their associates are compromised individuals. Sanballat, because he's of the population of those to whom Israel was told not to intermarry because of their detestable practices. Tobiah, because of his Jewish descent. And now he has sort of joined forces with those who are of that region. These guys and their associates now oppose the work of the Lord together. They have been trespassing in the city of God. And that's why they're upset because the walls going up means that their reign of terror is over. And so that's what we're meant to see here, that these fellows are compromised individuals. Uh, and what's interesting here too is some of the conflict that starts right here uh, this sets in motion really a long-standing conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, which we continue to see in the New Testament. Have you ever wondered, why do they hate them so much? 
Why all the angst with the Samaritans? Comes back to this. Because of their ungodliness and because of their resistance when, Jerusalem, or when, when Judah was moving back into Jerusalem. That's where the feud really begins. And so Nehemiah, who's carrying these letters of endorsement from King Artaxerxes, showing them to leaders along the way so that they would have uh, safe passage, shows these letters to the northern leaders and encounters the first wave of opposition, which really isn't too bad at first. It's, they were disturbed, and they mocked and ridiculed Nehemiah and his crew. But again, Nehemiah is not about to compromise. The work belongs to the people of God, and you guys have no share there. That's what he tells them. So how do we overcome opposition? We make, first, make sure that first and foremost we're committed to God's cause. And secondly, a second part of that, we don't allow for compromise or compromise individuals. And another part of that is we protect the integrity of the Lord's work, which is what Nehemiah is doing here. He takes pride in being a servant of God. I love his reply. The God of heaven will give us success. He's confident. We, his servants... We'll start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to his historic right. And so Nehemiah puts them at a right in their face. And what's interesting to me is that last week we saw Nehemiah use some diplomacy with the king, right? With King Artaxerxes. But uh, this week we see his conviction towards those who would oppose the Lord. And he doesn't mince word with these rulers. They have no right. There will be no compromise. He will protect the absolute integrity of his work. And Nehemiah shows us his true heart, which is that he does not fear any king or any earthly ruler. He fears the Lord. And that drives his action here. So obviously just being told uh, or just being a part of the Lord's business and guarding the integrity of the task um, these things are not going to keep us from opposition. Uh, what started out as concern here and question and ridicule, we're going to see now it elevates to anger and to hostility. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who is at his side and sounds an awful lot like a junior hire to me. What are they building? Uh, even a fox climbing on it would break down the wall of stones. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a punk kid? You know. Sorry, junior hires. We were all punks once. You'll get out of it. You'll grow out of it. Um, what we see, the conflict is escalating here. How does one overcome? What is Nehemiah to do? And this might surprise you. I think this is a beautiful and kind of shocking twist in the text that calls and demands our attention. He calls upon God to vindicate his own name through prayer. Again, let me clarify. We're not just... He's not just calling upon the Lord here to come to his personal aid and deliver his personal wants. But again, if, if, if our life has been aligned with the Lord and we encounter opposition, when we call upon the Lord to vindicate his own name, he's equipping us in the task that we're already committed to. 
And that's why that first point is pivotal. We're calling upon the Lord to act for his own good and glory. Listen to what he says here in the prayer. Verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Well, I think this prayer sort of invites or kind of begs the question, which is, can we pray like this? I know some of you are smiling like, can I? That would be nice to know. Um, The prayer is a little bit startling because it sounds unkind. It sounds a little bit fierce. It almost sounds like one is calling down a curse or some such thing. It reminds me of a whole genre of the Psalms called the imprecatory prayers, which we've talked about before. And rightly understood, these kinds of prayers, these kinds of psalms that we have here are honest prayers which are desiring the justice of the Lord and the vindication of his own name and calling for it. They're calling for the justice of God in an unjust world. It's not just a concern about God busting up my enemy, but rather that God's justice would reign. There are seven imprecatory psalms. Uh, I'll give you the numbers real quick. If Maybe this is something you'd want to study out this week if this is hitting home with you. Uh, Psalm 6, Psalm 35, Psalm 69, 83, 109, and Psalm 137. Uh, and that may be one of, the, one of the darker ones there. I think I've only given you six. So there's a hidden one, which I didn't give to you. Sorry. For those of you who are OCD, it's going to be a rough week. Um, <laughs> But when we're praying this way, what we are doing is we're laying claim to justice. That's what's at the heart of an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer. We're calling upon the Lord to vindicate his own name and to overcome his enemy, his foe, who is against the Lord by attacking his servant. And so again, it's not just simply a prayer for brutality. They're not bloodthirsty psalms. They're psalms which are concerned for the justice of God. When we pray this way, we are entrusting ourselves to God for justice. And herein is sort of the hidden beauty and the grace of an imprecatory psalm. Now, I think if you were to take some of these to an unbeliever, they would read them and go, this sounds brutal. How can you Christians be proud of this? Aren't you ashamed of what is here? This is scandalous. How can these psalms ask for these kinds of things? And how can you feel good about it? We see anger. We see violence here. What what, what is it that's going on? But in fact, when one is praying these psalms, they are actually doing a very gracious thing. They are not taking matters into their own hands. They are entrusting themselves to the Lord and saying, Lord, this is in your hands and I entrust myself to you. So while they're honest, while there's anger and there's emotion, there's even a sense of maybe even violence in some of them, one is not taking that action of violence, but they're saying, Lord, it's for you to do. As God tells us in his word, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. And we're asking him to vindicate his own name. Uh, I love what Athanasius, the fourth century theologian, says about the Psalms. He says, most of the scriptures speaks to us, but the Psalms 
speak for us. In other words, what God has done in his word has preserved some of these even imprecatory psalms, these prayers of those that have gone before us and preserved them in his word and given them to us like recipes of prayer. Uh, This last week, my wife was part of a play here in town and uh, she was quite busy and so I've had more meal prep uh, the last actually couple of weeks than normal. So if the kids look a little thin, you know why. Uh, but uh, so she gave me this, uh, this recipe, this, this uh, tortilla soup to make, which was really good. It came off pretty nice, not to make you hungry. but And I was so thankful that, of course, I have a recipe. Now my wife can just, you know, as many of you can, can just kind of put the ingredients on the counter there and just go to work, and she's not really following much. She just kind of lays it in the pot, and, you know, glory emerges. I don't know how that happens. It doesn't work like that for me. I'm looking for, well, how much of this, and how many, and how long. I need measurements. I need a guide. I need something to follow. And the Psalms are like that for us. God says, here are prayers that please me. I have preserved these in the inspired word of God that you might approach me in these ways. They're not just artifacts of history. They're invitations to come to the Lord in such a way. The Psalms and the prayer that we find from Nehemiah here. And so while some could be critical of these bloodthirsty prayers, that's what they seem to be, they're not prayers of actual attack. They're asking God to act. Earlier this week, there was a report of another attack by ISIS, and I suspect that many of you saw that. And uh, I'll spare you all of the details. But it was as brutal as ever before. Uh, In one instance, I guess the part that probably really hit home with me was uh, a pastor was made to watch his um, junior high-age son have the tips of his fingers cut off one at a time until they would recant their faith. So how does one pray when that happens? We pray that God would vindicate his own name. It would be shameful not to pray in such a way. We ask the Lord to act because his justice is better than yours and mine. And that's the right way to pray. These particular men here, the Sanballat, Tobiah, We read them, they seem like small figures, but understand they're not just bureaucrats holding up a building project. These are long-standing enemies of God, engaged in detestable practices, opposing his work, shaming servants of the Lord, and trespassing in the city of God. And it is right for Nehemiah to pray that their insults be turned back on their own head. To pray that they would be given over as plunder, as those who are conquered. It is right to pray in such a way that God would be for himself, for his own honor, for his own name, in ways that would break into the temporal world. And we're invited to pray the same. And that is a good way to deal with our own personal anger and frustration. So how do we overcome temptation? First of all, again, this is progressive. We make sure that we are first and foremost committed to the Lord. We give no room for compromise. We guard the integrity of the Lord's work. And as the opposition continues to come, we call upon the Lord 
to vindicate his own name. And those may be some very emotional prayers. As we do so, we're laying claim to justice, God's justice, and we're asking him to do it. We're entrusting ourselves to him to enact this justice. And then thirdly here, when we're, when we're encountering opposition, having prayed, do your work. And do your work with diligence. Look at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height. For the people worked just a little bit with all their heart. The people worked with all their heart. I think one of the amazing truths of Scripture that I still have not gotten over is, is this, that while God does not need us for his work, he dignifies us by calling us to partner with him in it. My kids love to work alongside dad. Sometimes I'm not good at it. Uh, I suspect that I'm not alone. Uh, there's times when, you know, say I'm changing the oil on the truck or something like that, and I crawl under there, and Gus will come down and say, Dad, can I help you? And there's the tension, right? Do I just get this done, or do I slow it down and say, yeah, come on under here, slide under the truck with me, let me walk you through it, let's get you dirty, we'll deal with Mom later, you know? Do I, do I, do I invite all of that, or do I just get the job done? But the face... On Gus, or the look on Gus's face when he is called upon to serve with dad in a task is priceless. He feels valued and dignified. He learns something. It's good time between us. And so it is, is with us in the Lord. He doesn't need us. He can get the job done, I suspect, a lot more efficiently without us. But he dignifies us for the task. He gifts us for it. He equips us, he empowers us, and he works with us in it. Uh, I ran across this statement a while back. I'm, I'm sorry I don't remember the author, but the individual said this, any work done for the Lord is a kingdom work. Any work done for the Lord is a kingdom work. Whether it's changing the oil, I'm going to stretch you here a little bit or whether it's cleaning and just bringing order to the house, or holding an infant through a fitful night, or mining the ground to coax out of some of God's hidden treasure, arranging a fair and profitable business deal, teaching kids to read, or attending to someone's sickness, or commanding the soldiers under our care. Any work that is directed towards the Lord for his glory and his honor is a kingdom work. Uh, don't ever think that your daily work is insignificant or indifferent to the kingdom of God. Israel, after all, is building a wall here. They're laying some bricks or some stones. But it is good, godly, glorious work, and they did it with all of their heart. There is, unfortunately, too great a divide in the church these days thinking that church work is kingdom work and everything else is just something else. And that's not true, my friends. Adam and Eve, in, while placed in the garden, were not given work as a curse. They were given work as the original gift. And their work was to tend the soil, to facilitate growth, to play in God's creation and turn it over again and again and discover his goodness in it. 
Our vocation, whatever it is, is an incredible opportunity to worship the Lord through good and glorious work. I love what R. Paul Stevens has said, and I've listed his book for you called The Other Six Days in your handouts, or at least I attempted to. I didn't check to see if it's there. He says this, We are not redeemed by Christ to become angels preparing for an immaterial heaven, but saved to become fully human beings serving God and God's purposes in the world through the church. The Apostle Paul tells us twice in the New Testament of the inclusiveness of this good work for kingdom work. He says in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. And 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our work is an invitation and an opportunity to honor the Lord and his kingdom. And so having prayed, we get on with our work. Prayer is no substitute for work. It, is, it rather informs it, sustains it, and directs it. Um, but in the end, we are to get on with our work, steadfast against the opposition towards us. If you're fortunate enough to be employed, gainfully employed, then I would say you need to be a worker who is worthy of your wages. You need to show up on time. Stay late. Work hard. Honor the Lord as though you were working for him, not an earthly boss, because guess what? You are. You're a child of God, and so be worthy of that name. The fourth thing here, how do we overcome opposition? Continue your work with prayer and wisdom. Here's where we see the intermingling of our work and our prayer. One doesn't stop and the other start. It's, there's this constant integration of the two. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against us. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard posted a guard at night to meet his threat. Uh, and so the point here is this. Don't be afraid of prayer and. And you're looking at that line and you're going, okay, you didn't give us the word to put in the blank. And that's exactly right. That's yours to fill in. Don't be afraid of prayer and. Well, I think the beautiful truth that we see here is that they prayed and they posted a guard. Uh, some people will just simply say, well, we prayed, and so now we'll do nothing. It's God's to act. Uh, and others would not pray at all and just come over here and be busy with their hands and trying to get things done, having never prayed. And the scriptures won't allow us to, to go to either extreme, but rather interweaves these things together. Pray for your work and work your way through prayer. Um, Many years ago, gosh, I have to do the quick count, probably 16 years ago, uh, I remember funny things. I don't remember this fellow's name at all. He was actually, Josh, this was a man that was at Westside. I don't remember who it was, but Josh and I used to work at the uh, same church year, years ago. But um, I was picking up something from his house to transport to the church for a youth program. 
And so I had a trailer, and we put it on the trailer, and it was quite a heavy thing. It took a few of us to, to uh, put it on the trailer. And I only had about two miles to go. Can you see where this is going? And, and um, my young and dumb and optimistic nature just was like, ah, it's good. It's going to be fine. It's heavy. It took a bunch of us to lift, us, lift it and put it there. Uh, I just got to go a couple miles here, no big. And he looks at me as a wiser, older savvy man and a little bit of a twinkle on his eye and I, I, I don't remember his name I don't even remember what we were putting on the trailer but I remember what he said to me he said oh Eric we put wings to our prayers <laughs> which I just loved so then we began to tie it down <laughs> we put wings to our prayers I like that that stays with me we yeah we pray that the Lord would vindicate his own name we pray that he would help us we we might even pray that in a sort of an imprecatory way that his justice would come. Uh, but we get to work. And we put wings uh, to our prayers. Don't be afraid of prayer and. So let me flesh this out. Are your finances tight? Well, pray. Pray that God would provide. But give an eye to your budget, right? Are you honoring the Lord with your income? Are you managing it well? Are you saving what you should? Are you earning what you should? Pray, but do your work. Um, maybe you have a boss that's giving you a hard time. Pray about it. But make sure that your work is stellar and unimpeachable. Ask for a clarification of your job description. Invite a performance review so that the both of you can see what's needed. Get in early. Stay late. Be worthy of your wages. So pray for God's intervention, but put your hand to the plow. Put wings to your prayer, as my friend, I say, whose name I can't remember, said. <laughs> um, don't be afraid of conventional wisdom, hard work, and giving yourself to your craft. Uh, verse 10. Meanwhile, the prophet and Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's much rubble that we cannot rebuild. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall and at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. The point here is this. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Uh, maybe the most important real estate of any battle against any opposition is the real estate right here. Right here in our head. That we would remember the Lord. That we would know his nature. That we would know his power. And that he fights for those who are his. And finally here, do what is in your power to do. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that we are aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And from that day on, half of the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. 
the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. How about that? Working one-handed while ready to defend. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the men who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. As I talked about last week, probably each one of us is pulled towards one extreme or the other. Either we will pray and not get on with our work, or many of you like to just get on with your work having never prayed. And these this, this passage, Ezra, Nehemiah, these men, these stories will not allow us to do one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. They're integrated like hand in glove. And so by way of conclusion, let me just throw some of these, some examples out here. Pray for our country and for our leaders. But do your research and vote responsibly if that were somehow possible this year. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say that with a straight face, but I can't. Uh, Pray for a loved one's salvation, but open your mouth and share with them the good news of the gospel. Pray for reconciliation between you and that other person, but do your own work of confession, asking for forgiveness, offering forgiveness, being willing to share your frustrations. Pray for God's provision, but be wise with the resources you have. All of God's people will encounter opposition, but we have a God who is great and awesome and who fights for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the dignity that we have as your children. We're not left out of your good work but called to it, equipped for it, and empowered. May we, Lord, as we commit ourselves to you and to your kingdom first and foremost, as we encounter opposition that will no doubt come, may we do work with both hands, hands folded in prayer, hands busy at work. Thank you for the example of these, your servants, and for what we learn from them. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.